You're listening to the English language news of Khan, the Israeli Public Broadcasting Corporation. Good evening and Shabbat Shalom. This is Nomi Segal with a look at culture and lifestyle stories. On our program this week, in a new dance work, Mamo, eight women re-examine events and choices that shape their lives. In the Negev, archaeologists uncover a 1,200-year-old vast rural estate, the first of its kind to be found in that part of the country. A tribute to Elvis in Israel on the 45th anniversary of his death. And on the 125th anniversary of the first Zionist Congress in Basel, seeking ways to engage younger, disconnected generations about Israel. Let's begin. In Mamo, the new work by choreographer and dancer Elik Neve, eight women in the middle of their lives engage in a re-examination of events and choices that shaped their lives. They reveal situations of pain and humor, passion, life and death, in a personal expression that breaks boundaries in voice, movement and text. The piece is the culmination of a year-long creative process Neve engaged in with the women— most in their 70s and non-professional dancers, who were part of a dance movement workshop he led. The piece will be performed September 1st and 2nd at the Inbal Multicultural Ethnic Center in Tel Aviv, launching the Inbal Company's 2022-2023 performance season. We spoke to Neve about the work. Mamo is a dance performance piece that has been created with eight non-professional women. Beside one of them, they're all over 70. Um, it happened during COVID. I had an idea which I applied with to the state to start a piece, and then COVID came and I just couldn't enter the studio in Tel Aviv. And the year before I was teaching this woman, they're all visual artists, you know, teaching them a point of view of a dancer over the body, composition, the body as material. But I never thought to create with them. It was not a question in the air. And then they threw me this idea. And then first I thought, no way. I don't know how to work with women their age. They're non-professional. Uh, it sounded just like a nice kind of idea that floats around. And then COVID came in and I was trying to work here in Tel Aviv and the city wouldn't pick up the club. And then I thought, why am I chasing a ghost that doesn't want to work with me and I have these beautiful women who are willing to engage? So that's how it started. So what exactly, what was the process? What were you exploring? What did they, uh, how did it evolve? So first thing first, we, I decided not to come with a concept. Normally, Let's say I choose an, a, a topic and I research around it, like modern myth was my piece before. What is myth today in our time, after the pioneers' time? Here, the idea was them. The, the, the topic I'm researching is these women, their stories, their scars, their history, their past, what they achieved, what they didn't achieve, how they deal with their body and their age, how they deal with, yeah, approaching death. Um, so the first sessions was, let's float, what is it you want to talk about? Mother-daughter relationship, um, sexual traumas. 
sexuality in this age, um, body, how do you feel about it now? How, how do you deal with it? And we started to play. So first we filtered what is it we want to talk about. Every day starts, every rehearsal starts with a dance class. Then they float ideas and they give it a form. They start to, to try to check it through text, through um, singing, through dancing, moving. And we start filtering. I start filtering uh, what's going to research and what stays on the editing floor. And when, it, when the topics that have been chosen go to research, then we focus on them for nearly a year. And slowly you realize what you miss, what elements you have, what elements you miss. Um, I had a great deal of help from a painter. She's a participant, Mirav Sudei, which was uh, artistically escorting me, but also gave a lot to the piece. The piece is very visual, and she has a great deal of that. Um, and we brought in experts for other fields. We did spoken words workshop, we did singing workshops, we did uh, um, acting or performance workshop with a beautiful Italian actor, Pietro Quadrino. So slowly, you know, we, we start to gain intimacy and trust in the, in the process and the, the dareness to go further and further and further. So in a sense, from some of the personal stories or experiences or thoughts of the individual participants, you filtered them through and as a group decided to explore particular ideas? Was there consensus and dialogue during this whole process? Yes. Um, it's up to them also, like how much they would like to expose. But the more we went deeper, they, they opened up. Uh, I think we went quite far. I don't think. I know we went quite far. I think that's that's also the heart. That's why this show is feeling so real. Um, they're painting themselves, and therefore it's very authentic. That's why it can work with non-professionals. I'm not asking them to copy me and give it interpretation. I'm asking them to perform themselves in the most in the way they want to design in the most beautiful way they can. Of course, with my experience and help and and with professional tools I bring from the outside, but at the end of the day, they are the heart of the research. How is this for you as a creator who does work with dancers? Does it make you think differently about your work or something to include uh, or approach differently? Not really. I think in the end, it's the human. Dancers are using the body as a tool to tell a story, but at the end, it's a story. And Andy Warhol said, it's not the moon, it's the astronaut. Uh, I absolutely agree with that. If somebody has, especially these women in these age, living in Israel in these such dramatic times, of course, they have incredible stories. I mean, basically, they are kind of survivors. They have, they're tough in a way, they don't complain, they're full of compassion, and it's beautiful. It's interesting as it is. The trick is how to pull it out. That's the difficulty. But if a non-professional commits, you have material to work with. It does not have to have perfect movement technique. And vice versa, you can see perfectly people who move insane. But if there's not a soul to their story, it won't stay with you. There seems to, it sounds as if there's also to some degree a very therapeutic aspect to that, even if perhaps it wasn't the immediate intention. It's true. And uh, many, many people 
look at it this way. I think when you talk about yourself, immediately it's therapeutic. I think movement, we, la- we live in a society who lacks movement. So the moment you start moving, touching, thinking about how to touch, how to be touched, and how to approach floor or rhythm or time, it, it feeds things you were missing or we as a society missing. And yeah, of course, talking about your past, opening it, looking at it as an adult, singing it, dancing it. Yeah, it's therapeutic, but that was not the purpose. I didn't mean to come and do a therapeutic session for them. I know it from years of working. I'm working this way quite a while. That, yeah, it's very therapeutic. It also often open, open locations. I mean, Many times, the first time you do it, there's a big wave of emotion coming. They often with cry, and, but it's not pain that we're touching. We're releasing something. You said this grew out of the constraints upon us during the pandemic. Do you have, give thought to continuing this kind of a framework in some way or another? Um, with non-professionals or with them? Uh, well, I could say both. I was thinking non-professionals, but also with dance. With them, yeah. As far as I can go, I will run with it, and it seems to to be going well at the moment. Knock, knock, knock. Um, but no, it's not a necess- I won't say, now this is my thing. I think this is what life offered, and we did a beautiful painting out of it, a beautiful portrait of them individually and as a group. And, but it's not something I would aim. And also, it's, it's also difficult. Also, you need to teach a lot of tools in order to create a dialogue. Tools of dancers, actors, whatever performers already have it built in. And that's also difficult. Um, so it takes a lot of time and patience. And plus, this group is very unique. It would be very difficult to reproduce. Um, women, first of all, they belong. Originally, they were a group before me. They're this is a portion of a bigger group of visual artists coming from a movement called Tarbut culture that praises culture as a changing life experience. And, and that's, what, that's what brought them together. So they kind of deal with it before. And, and second, I don't know if you can find non-professionals that are so committed. Plus, I think women in this age are way more flexible to still rethink, change, dare. I really doubt it if I could do the same with men. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's my feeling. So where can one see upcoming performances of the work? The next uh, shows, uh, we are, have been invited to open the season of Inbal Theater in Suzanne Dalal, which is a great honor for us. So we will open the season 22-23. Uh, that would be the 1st of September, Thursday at 8 o'clock. The 2nd of September, that's Friday at 2 o'clock choreographer and dancer Alec Neve. More information about the performances and tickets for MAMO can be found at inbal.smartticket.co.il. <laughs> Turning to archaeology, a 1,200-year-old rural estate dating to the early Islamic period the first of its kind discovered in the Negev, has been uncovered in excavations carried out by the Israel Antiquities Authority prior to the expansion of the Bedouin town of Rahat. Among the surprises at the site, a vaulted tunnel complex built beneath a courtyard overlying a rock-hewn water cistern. We heard more from Dr. Noé Michael, 
one of the co-directors of the excavation. We are excavating here in Rahat, south of the city, um, since about eight months. And we discovered here a very large, uh, we call it luxury mansion. And it's uh, about, including the courtyard, about 900 square meters large. And in the courtyard, about in a, in the depth of about um, six meters, we found um, built tunnels with arches, a system of uh, seven tunnels. What were they used for? So we are not completely sure. It's uh, all speculation at the moment, but uh, most likely they were used for storage. Um, they are very high tunnels, like uh, two meters thirty about tunnels, which were built on the bedrock. And uh, so it means uh, people could move there around freely. And most likely, we can see that in some at the end of some of the tunnels, there is opening a larger hall of about five, six, seven meters uh, cut into the lift. So most likely, this uh, system was used uh, as storage rooms. There is also a water system carved into the bedrock. So is this the first such um, complex that's been discovered in this area? Do you have any sense uh, who lived here, who used it, who it served? Um, it's uh, the first complex of this kind that has been discovered in the Negev, for sure. Uh, we have similar similar housing, uh, houses or structures in uh, Jordan, where they are called castles. Um, as I said, it's a, a very large luxury mansion, and it was used during the late Umayyad Abbasid period. We assume that some local ruler must have lived here uh, that oversaw the farmhouses that we partially excavated here around. That was my next question. For such a luxurious or such a developed uh, estate to be found there, there must be supportive uh, community structures of commerce and residents waiting yet to be excavated or, or waiting under the different layers of soil in yes. the outlying area. It speaks to a larger settlement. Is that not the case? Well, we know that there is, um, we excavated uh, here around several uh, like we have a rural estate, we excavated a rural estate about 400 or 500 meters from here, which uh, also had a mosque, a small mosque with it, and several buildings, some very large farmhouses. And uh, to the south, we discovered a second rural mosque. So we know this area was populated by a rural population. But uh, the farmhouses we find are um, mostly just very large farmhouses, so meaning there must be a larger population living here around in this area, uh, have been lived here around. So what are the plans for the site? Well, the Israel Antiquities Authority um, is working together with the uh, local uh, government of the city of Rahat uh, to preserve the site. So um, all of these findings for you working at the site, was there something that particularly struck or surprised you in this project? Well, um, 
clearly uh, this underground uh, complex. We didn't expect it uh, to find such a thing, especially well, there is nothing known that is similar to this. And also, the house itself or the structure itself with painted walls and marble floors, it's uh, quite unusual for the early Islamic period in the Negev. So what might it tell you about the inhabitants? Well, we see that uh, they used here in uh, in the structure and also in other structures, they used a lot of... Um, pieces uh, from like architectural elements from churches, which we know they were nearby. So um, I think it shows us the transformation from uh, Christianity to Islam and uh, from the rural population already. Like uh, it's not that the, somebody built, the government built a mosque in Jerusalem. It's here that people are already building mosques uh, it's clearly um, Islamic population here, a Muslim population, and uh, it seems they did quite well. Dr. Noem Michael of the Israel Antiquities Authority. Wise men say only fools rush A few days ago marked the 45th anniversary of the death of Elvis Presley. Well, it turns out Elvis is alive and well and can be found at a truck stop in the Jerusalem foothills. Reporter Arie O'Sullivan went there this past weekend, and here's what he found. Jerusalem Tel Aviv Highway, don't be surprised if you hear the sounds of Elvis Presley wafting out of the doorway of a gas station diner near the town of Neve Ilan in the Jerusalem foothills. For the past 48 years, this diner has been a shrine, a museum, and a tribute to the king of rock and roll. It's a place where you can find the typical local souvenirs like bottles of Jordan River holy water next to coffee mugs with the picture of Elvis on them. This past weekend, Elvis impersonators and fans gathered at the truck stop to pay tribute to the king to mark the 45 years since his death. Some came dressed like Elvis or even his ex-wife Priscilla. Others came to dance and some even came to sing. Danny Shiloni, S-H-I-L-O-N-I. So Danny, did you come especially to hear Elvis today? Yes. I always come to hear Elvis and I always gather with some friends of mine because we really love this guy. He's great. I'm not talking about the, the, phenomenon, the phenomenon. I'm talking about the, pep, the, the people that love Elvis, they love his songs and... It never dies. These songs, they never die. It seems to me it's been brought back to life here. You really yeah. feel like you're listening to it. Yeah, it's great. You know, sometimes he lets me sing, and I take the song of Frank Sinatra my way, which is great. Elvis 
sang it, also Frank Sinatra, many songs. And it's just great to, to hear. How many Elvis songs do you know? I'll, I'll give you an example. Okay. Uh, Okay, excellent. Thank you, Dan. Really appreciate it. Let me sit down, please. Okay. I, I know you feel inside like you're Elvis Presley, but what's your real name? Uh, Ronald Lebron. My name is uh, my real name is Ronald Lebron. Okay. You know, I've seen you come here many times. How do you want people to feel when you sing? Well, I like to see, to see the the real king. It's uh, the natural thing that I want to the people. I want you, uh, the people that wants to, to feel. You know. So you want to bring the king back to life? Oh well, yeah. I want to bring uh, Elvis alive. You know, as much as I can. You know. Looks sound as much as I can, you know. What got you into Elvis Presley? Well, I, well, he's such a, a good guy, full of charisma, beautiful, and uh, uh, he sings so pretty, and sings from the heart. He's, he's like a true man, you know, and when he sings, you, you can feel his truth. Do you it, feel it's a little bit strange to be singing Elvis Presley here around Jerusalem? <laughs> well, not, you know, because uh, Elvis, uh, I guess love the Jerusalem and the Israeli culture. And uh, I guess it's, 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 uh, he wants to be in the, in the cultal, you know, <laughs> but he just can't reach with it because the corner will let him out of the of, uh, United States. So let me ask you one more yeah. question. You come here yeah. many times yeah. and you, you've been coming here for a long time, but this is a special day today, isn't it? Well, it, it is a special day because Elvis uh, Presley died on August uh, 16. And yes, we, we uh, celebrate his dead because he's not dead, you know. He's still alive and well. Eddie, and what brings you here to Elvis Inn in Navelan in Israel? Well, I've never been here before. I heard about this place, and uh, just, I know Aaron. We're friends, and I uh, just want to see the show. And it's a beautiful place, by the way. It's authentic, original, I would say. You look like a little bit of an Elvis impersonator yourself, are you? Well, I'm a singer, yeah, I do Elvis shows, I'm an Elvis tribute artist, yes. What draws you to Elvis? Oh my god. Uh, I don't know, it's just uh, since I was a kid, I mean, who, who doesn't love Elvis when you think about it, right? Uh, I'm a big fan, and uh, since I was a kid, I wanted to be a singer, so it happened. You know, it happened to me. I think it's uh, probably the best job in the world, just being on stage, uh, having the opportunity just to travel around the world and meet people. And just, uh, it's a beautiful thing. It's a blessing, I would say. You've sort of taken on the Elvis persona, too. Uh, no, uh, I mean, I like to make a difference between an Elvis tribute artist and an Elvis impersonator. An impersonator is a guy, he's a guy who, who tries to sound like him and be like him, 
me, I'm paying a tribute to Elvis, and I'm trying to be me at the same time, but like staying in that zone of Elvis, you know, not overdoing it. Because we gotta be honest. I mean, Elvis was unique, and uh, nobody can be like him or something like that, no matter how much we try, you know. But we pay a tribute to to the man himself. First of all, what's your name? Amir. Amir what? Yoeli. And what brings you here? I'm the owner of this place. Are oh, you the owner? Yeah. Okay. I mean, Elvis Presley, doesn't he get old? Never. Elvis is an icon. He's a cultural icon. Never gets old. And on the contrary, the young generation loves him and admires him exactly like the previous generation. And I see they're dancing here and people are coming. Yeah. Today is a very special day, isn't it? Yeah, today is a very special day. Uh, Elvis... Um, um, death anniversary. He died August 16, 1967. Um, August 77. 70, sorry. 1977. I'm sorry, you're right. Um, Elvis, uh, 16, August 16 was a few days ago, but because today is Saturday, in the weekend, we moved it for today and we we are celebrating it today. And, um, and describe to me, how are you celebrating? What, what are we seeing here? We see uh, Elvis impersonators. Uh, we have our own Elvis impersonator in-house. His mm -hmm. name is Iran Lebron, a very good one. But today, because it's a special day, we um, accept other Elvis impersonators to sing and to celebrate and celebrate Elvis memory. Now, finally, this has been going on for a long time. And since when? Do you remember? Yeah, this place was established in 1974. Elvis was still alive, actually, at that time, and it was established by my father. So it's I I, I born into it. So. I, I have no other choice than And you'll be doing this for a long time. I'm doing it from the day I was born. I'm born here since I'm six or something. Uh, and uh, I think I'll do it for a long time. So, so it's kind of unusual to think of a Jerusalem Hills, Elvis Presley, but you've made it very traditional. Uh, yeah, actually, you're right. Uh, many people uh, that, um, many media that from abroad usually tell me, you know, Israel, we usually cover the Gaza Strip or West Bank, yeah, conflict. And to have uh, Elvis news from Israel, very exciting. That's true.
in the Holy Land, Elvis Presley was resurrected, at least for a few hours. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a nice day. We'll meet you again. May God bless you. Adios. That report from Arie O'Sullivan. Finally, a conference will be held next week in Basel, Switzerland, marking the 125th anniversary of the historic First Zionist Congress, held in the same city, which was the first international meeting of the Zionist movement. On August 28th and 29th, some 500 guests and international speakers will engage in an open discussion and think tank sessions focusing on the challenges of the next decade and on how to strengthen the Zionist movement, the diaspora, and the state of Israel for a better and united Jewish nation and people. Among the invited participants is Joanna Landau, founder and CEO of Vibe Israel, who will take part in a panel entitled The Everyday Battle, Fighting the Disinformation. Landau spoke with us earlier about her efforts focused specifically on engaging the disconnected younger generation about Israel. Well, I think that most of the engagement that's done around this topic is primarily sort of reactive to the fact that there is anti-Semitism, there is anti-Zionism, and what do we do about it? How do we respond to it? Uh, So it's more reactive than it is proactive in the sense that trying to avoid having anti-Semitism or anti-Zionism altogether, it's not to say that it doesn't exist, it's just to say that there's not as much effort being put into that as opposed to dealing with those people who are already anti-Semitic or anti-Zionist. And the second thing is that uh, there's a lot of the effort is direct rather than indirect in the sense that um, organizations, government, uh, so on and so forth, are going after those who are uh, clearly uh, not in favor of Israel and they're trying to create uh, a, a narrative that responds to it rather than or not in addition enough to Uh, having uh, an indirect approach, which means let's go uh, to people who are not necessarily interested in this topic, don't really have uh, a formed opinion, and let's try and build a relationship with them that is based on what Israel and the Jewish people can offer them and what value can we bring to them, because I believe that if you create relationships, that is the first level in order to get people to want to actually eventually support you, advocate for you, and so on. The first basis is that they need to be aware of what you have to offer. And unfortunately, there's not enough of that. There's a tremendous amount of um, dealing with those who are already against us. But I'm focused more on the, uh, the indirect and the proactive approach. So what kinds of steps does that entail? So for us, uh, I founded Vibe Israel, uh, which is a, a nonprofit organization. Um, and the idea is that we're shaping and promoting Israel's global image in the world, especially amongst the next generation. So uh, first thing is that understanding 
who do we actually want to get to, who are the ones that we feel we need to impact most, uh, because they're the biggest cause of concern. And I would say that the people under the age of 40 who have very little memory of the Holocaust, who have uh, perhaps less interest in what's going on in the Middle East than people who are older used to have, uh, who don't remember how the Israeli-Palestinian conflict even started, those are the people that we uh, are at risk of losing, even within our own tribes, amongst the Jews themselves. And so the first thing is to understand who are we talking to, and uh, our focus is on the next generation. And the second thing is to use all sorts of tactics, tactics and strategies that actually come from a different methodology. It's not advocacy uh, in, from our point of view. We don't do advocacy. It's not doing diplomacy. We're not representing the state of Israel. We're much more focused on branding and marketing Israel, if you will. It's almost like it's a product on a supermarket shelf. And why would someone choose it? Which means you have to focus on our strengths and what we can offer and what is interesting to the audiences that we're trying to connect to. Now, do you have a methodology? Do you have uh, numbers, research, or studies uh, that can kind of fill out some of these findings or this snapshot that you've given us of the situation? Absolutely. We're a very data-driven organization. I think when you, if you, if you, you know, you're not using data, it's like you're driving with, driving with your eyes shut, right? So we've been uh, sort of conducting global research about how young people who don't actually necessarily have an opinion about Israel. They're unaffiliated, uh, whether it's Jewish or non-Jewish, uh, not the ones who are you know, fighting the fight on campuses, but everybody else. Um, we've been doing this since 2018 using uh, global companies. And the most recent research that we did was particularly interesting. Uh, in the last year or two, I think even longer, we're, we're deeply concerned about what's going on on campuses. Uh, everybody is tremendously concerned about minorities in the United States, for example, the African-American community, the Hispanics, who seem to be more drawn to the anti-Israel narrative uh, than probably other people. This is the impression that we have in the community. And I wanted to sort of uh, challenge that uh, foundational belief because it's pretty much defining how we're all behaving. Because from my experience of bringing digital influences to Israel over a decade uh, through Vibe Israel, we've only seen positive views of Israel. And so it kind of didn't make sense to me that everybody, uh, every African-American on campus is against Israel by definition. I wanted to check that. And so in March this year, we did a survey amongst uh, almost a thousand college students in cities which are particularly uh, relevant for minorities who are also uh, progressives, define themselves politically as progressives. These are the ones that the community is worried about the most. So we took Miami, we took San Francisco, uh, we took uh, Chicago, and we did this research. And we asked them very simple questions about Israel. Would you go visit? Would you buy an Israeli product? Uh, what is your general perception of Israel? Things like that. And then for three weeks, we uh, did an Instagram and Facebook campaign with some content that we had from two years ago when we were doing trips until uh, COVID stopped us and now we're rebuilding uh, the program. And we, so we had a lot of video content, which was about vegan food and dogs in Tel Aviv and travel uh, opportunities in Israel. And we turned those into short videos, which we then pushed online into the social media feeds of this age group and this particular demographic in these cities uh, for about three weeks. We invested $30,000 in that and we got 3 million hits, which means that it's got a 
a good bang for our buck. And then three weeks later, we repeated the survey because we wanted to see whether this short and quick um, action of bringing positive content to people can shift their perception. And what we found was, was very, very surprising. I, I, even I was not sure that my theory that actually there's most people really don't care. And if you provide them with great content about Israel, then they'll be willing and interested in engaging. Even I was surprised by the results. The, the starting point was much better than I thought. Uh, around 50% of them were, that when asked what their perceptions of Israel are, they were either positive or very positive. And we're talking about African-American college age progressives, African-Americans and Hispanics. Um, they, uh, 40% of them were sort of neither here nor there in terms of their perception. And 9% uh, of them were negative and very negative. So 9% is really what's dictating most of the community's behavior. And we, we've always thought that's kind of off in terms of defining a strategy, and this confirmed it. And then when we did the, the, the three weeks worth of, of sort of content, which was really uplifting and fun and exciting and interesting uh, about Israel to this demographic, uh, and we did the survey again, we found that we went up from 50% positive to 70 plus percent positive. From 40% indifferent, we were down to 20% uh, indifferent. And from 9% negative, we were down to 4% negative. So we can see that this kind of activity, which is completely complementary to all the efforts that are being put into going against the negative statements being made about Israel, uh, is just as effective as at building the very, very basis of what we need in order to have a next generation that cares for Israel, wants to support it, wants to advocate for it. So is social media the most effective platform when you're trying to build Israel's image and create positive response to it? So I would say yes and no. <laughs> so yes, because social media is where the next generation is. If you're not playing there, then you're not there. Like it's as if when radio came on or when television turned into a came into our lives, uh, you know, advertisers remained in print, you know, and they didn't adapt themselves. So today, social media is where everybody is. Uh, you have to be there if you want to connect to the next generation. And it's incredible and it's a wonderful tool. And yes, I do feel that it, uh, working on social media with positive engagement about Israel is the fastest and most effective way to reconnect the next generation with Israel. However, it is the least effective uh, platform when you're trying to go against the negative narrative about Israel. And the reason is, there's a multitude of reasons. We have a whole e-learning uh, course about that that's free and you know, anybody who's interested can do it. But the bottom line is nobody goes onto social media to be told that they're wrong. This is not a platform for engagement in a deep conversation. And a conversation about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it requires a deeper level of analysis. It requires knowledge and understanding and a desire to have a conversation. And what we're doing right now is that we're, we're sort of arguing with people who there is no way that they, we will convince them. But conversely, there's no way they will convince us as well. So we have to recognize that. I'm not saying we don't need to do uh, sort of advocacy online. I think it's very important. There are methodologies of doing that. There are organizations that do it. But I don't think that it should be 90% of the work that we do. We're missing out on a really, really big piece, which is what's the positive content that kids see when they're scrolling on their feeds every day? 
and they scroll the height of the Statue of Liberty on their feeds every single day. Where's Israel when it comes up? So the alternative then, when you're talking about negative images, face-to-face encounters in some form? Well, it doesn't have to be face-to-face. I think we have to recognize, especially post-COVID, that there has to be an enormous amount of digital uh, assets online, digital data online uh, that promotes the country. And by the way, we use a methodology called country branding, which is an industry that has developed in the last 20 years that looks at countries just like commercial brands look at their brands. And any commercial brand creates digital content so that it can be shared onwards. And today, countries do that as well on a really strategic level. And so we believe that there has to be a lot of digital content out there. Of course, the face-to-face experience is the best there is. And so that's why our tours combine the two uh, uh, sort of best uh, options, which is an offline experience that has an online sharing and distribution platform through the influences that we bring. But um, I don't think that it replaces the, um, the negative uh, conversation. There are those who want to have a conversation about the conflict. With people like that, we're not going to be bringing you know, cherry tomatoes or, or, or dogs in Tel Aviv because that's not the conversation that they want to have. People like that need to have a serious conversation. And for that, you have advocacy organizations that do good work online as well. But most of the people are not that. And they want to have something else. And there is a huge void of positive digital content about Israel online. And what about engagement of the younger Jewish generation? Are you seeing a slide? And does that require a different kind of approach? So it's interesting, you know, I've been I've been doing this for almost 15 years. There's definitely a, a concern. We can see that we're sort of hemorrhaging young people who are becoming very uh, drawn into the the sort of the the negative narrative about Israel that is revolving around human rights and aspects like that, which is, you know, if you look at it very objectively, you can understand where they're coming from. It is complex. Um, However, at the same time, you have incredible, incredibly successful efforts like birthright and like uh, honeymoon Israel and and, uh, momentum and and, and projects that are aimed at showcasing uh, Israel's values and uh, positive aspects to Jewish young kids. And those projects are strong and successful. And uh, so long as they continue, there's now Route 1, which is looking at teenagers, um, they will will continue to bear fruit. But the uh, a Jewish millennial and a Jewish Gen Z is first and foremost a millennial or a Gen Z. They are products of the era that they were born into. They're not Jewish first and then they're age first. If you want to deal with them, this is not a, 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 you know, a philosophical question. Uh, this is a very simple question about communication and influence. If you want to be able to influence young people, you have to know how they think. You have to know what their value system are, and you have to recognize what platforms they're on and how they're engaging on them. Jews are just like non-Jews. Gen Z is going to be on a particular platform, probably TikTok, probably Snapchat, probably Instagram, uh, less likely to be on Facebook, LinkedIn, so on. You want to be able to focus your efforts there. Millennials, which means up to the age of about 40, probably they're also uh, on those platforms and on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, so on. So you need to kind of know where you're at and engage them 
I believe that the, the solution is to put aside that they're Jewish and ask yourself, why should they care about Israel in the first place? And once you do that, you remove the emotional desire to get immediate results from them and this emotional expectation of somebody who just did birthright to be forever indebted to Israel and now become a full-on Israel advocate. And you realize that the only way this is going to work is if you are a gift that keeps on giving, just like a commercial brand. A commercial brand will not expect a customer to continue buying from it if it doesn't continue offering it value. If we see it in that way and we remove ourselves from the emotional desires that we have because we're very emotional about this, then I think that Israel will do a tremendous job because it's an incredible, uplifting, inspiring product that may have its shortcomings, but we, we definitely have a wonderful story to tell, and that's what this conference is really going to be telling. Joanna Landau, founder and CEO of Vibe Israel. That concludes this week's program. Thanks for listening. You can find Khan English on the Khan Radio and digital platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Spotify. This is Nomi Segal wishing you good evening. Good evening.